Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Welcome to a world where gas is affordable, there is no conflict in the world, and everything is fine. (laughs) That's not it, but this is Scandal 101, so hopefully this is something that you look forward to, and all of the things we can hopefully look forward to soon. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Do you hear that motorcycle? Perfect. Awesome. What a good way to start the show. (laughs) In terms of scandal updates that I've seen in the news recently, of course, there's always a lot going on. Um, One article I read from the LA Times, there is a correction officer that is the fifth person charged in a growing sex abuse case at a federal female prison. And basically what it sounds like is these prison officials were abusing their power and they were having inappropriate sexual contact and sexually assaulting women in the prison. And it's just so gross that people in power use that power to just completely violate and harass people, especially in a place where there's probably limited to no privacy, there's nowhere to get away from these people, it's just horrible, and it's a growing case, so there's a fifth person charged in this growing case. I'm sure there will be more going forward. Maybe will be a future episode when this whole thing hopefully wraps up soon and hopefully there's not a lot more to discover, but I fear that there probably is. And with that, I don't really have a lot else to say other than this um, Hispanic grocery store opened up like right down the street from me, which is super exciting because one, I live in a food desert while I used to before this grocery store. So now there's a grocery store that like, people in the area can go to, which is super nice. And also they just have, I mean, I only went, I've, so I went this week cause I needed milk and I was like grocery store, I can go check it out, but I'm going grocery shopping tomorrow, which I guess is today when this episode comes out. I'm so excited. They have like fresh pastries and like all these different snacks and drinks. And it's like a good, cool mix of like American snack food, Hispanic snack food, and like all of these cool things that I've tried just a couple of times and there's so many things to try so that's exciting update in my life new grocery store no longer in a food desert <sighs> what a world okay Alrighty, for my sources for this episode, I used a Jay Ball article called How a Team of Students Beat the Casinos from BBC News, an article by Jay Brooker from Best U.S. Casinos titled How Much Did the MIT Blackjack Team Win, a documentary titled Breaking Vegas, The True Story of the MIT Blackjack Team. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. The link's in the notes. An article from ABC News by N. Goldman, a website called History versus Hollywood, and then two Wikipedia pages for some background. With that, we are going to dive in. This is about the MIT Blackjack Team, and you're like, who cares about Blackjack? 
you will because this episode is super interesting. It's about college kids winning millions and millions of dollars. You've probably heard generally about this story, but you're going to get the full scope here, so let's get into it. To start out this episode, I am going to very briefly explain what Blackjack or 21 is, just in case you're not aware of what the game is, and so that way we can all be on the same page and have a cute little refresher course. So Blackjack, it's known for being one of the easiest games to beat. It's and I guess when I say easiest, it's one of the easiest ones to beat because all of the other ones are basically impossible to beat. It's also the game that the player has the best odds against the house, and it's just a fan favorite. It's my favorite game to go play gambling, so watch out, Vegas. (laughs) Essentially, how Blackjack works is you sit at a table with four to five other people, and there's one dealer. There's a minimum bet, usually five to ten dollars, depending on where you are. It could be a lot higher, so you have to bet the minimum, but you can bet as much money as you want. I know, you know, if you're super duper rich, um, send me an email, but also you can bet whatever you want. (laughs) So after you place the bet down, The dealer starts dealing the cards, they deal one to each person and one to themselves, but the first one they keep to themselves is upside down. They then deal a second card to everybody, and then they put the dealer's second card up. So you can see everybody's cards, the two cards in front of them, and the dealer you can see one card. The goal of the game is to get to 21, or to get as close to 21 as possible without going over. You can hit, which is like you get a card, and then it adds together, so... You have a 2 and a 3, that's 5. You hit, you get a king, that's 10. You're at 15. And then you kind of base it off of what the dealer is showing. So if they're showing a low number, you could probably stop. But if they're showing like a 7 or an 8, you probably want to go. Basically, you just want to try to get as close to 21 as possible. And how it ends is, let's say you end with 18 and the dealer ends with 18 as well. If you tie with the dealer, you break even. You don't win money, you don't lose money. If you lose to the dealer, you lose your bet. But if you win the money, or if you win against the dealer, then you win money. And if you get a blackjack, that's when you have an ace and a phase card. So 10, queen, jack, king. So blackjack is the best, but 21 is also good. Goal of the game, beat the dealer, you're good to go. That is a very brief rundown. There are some extra rules that casinos can have, there's different jackpots, random things like that, but we get the premise. The cards, it's just a standard deck of cards, ace, two, three, four, all the way up to king, you get it, and depending on the casino, they can use just one deck, they can use multiple decks, they can shuffle at various times, they can cut the deck in different places, so even though you know what the deck looks like, you never can really know How many cards are in there? Like, are they using two decks, three decks? I don't know. Is it just one deck? I guess if it's one deck, you could probably tell. But most casinos use multiple decks. They shuffle randomly and they shuffle at random times. They will let the players cut the deck. So even though you know what a deck of cards is, it's hard to predict what is going on because it's not like you can spend minutes and minutes trying to figure out, well, there's three sevens on the table and I have a ten. No. You get 20 seconds, probably max, to place your bet, or not to place your bet, but to hit or stop. It's a quick moving game, and there's not a lot of time to think. But even though there's not that much time to think, 
the reason why people love blackjack is there is some amount of control that the players have. And some of this control is possible because the game of blackjack is not subject to the law of independent trials. And what the law of independent trials is, is it's that the likelihood of each possible outcome does not change from trial to trial. So, for example, if you flip a coin and you get heads, and you flip the coin again, you have the same probability of getting heads or tails than you did the first time. Same thing with roulette. When you spin it and the little marble goes into the wheel, it could land on any number, any color, just as equally as it could have in the last round. That's not the case with blackjack. When a king comes out of the deck, that means there is one less king in that deck. Same with aces. So if you're playing with three decks, that's 12 kings, that's 12 aces. If you see three kings on the table, you know that there can only be nine kings left in that deck, maybe eight, if one of them is the upside down card for the dealer. You can learn to figure out quickly how to calculate odds, how to calculate what is going on in the game. So if you're quick at math, if you are good under pressure and you know how the system works, you can turn the odds in your favor. Taking a basically 180 turn, MIT, (laughs) or the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world. They are especially known for their science and engineering programs, but they have so many other programs that are well known. They're just like one of the top ranked schools in the entire world. They have 41 MIT alumni that have won Nobel Peace Prizes. They have 48 Rhodes Scholars, 61 Marshall Scholars, and some notable alumni, including the co-founder of Texas Instrument, the calculator that everyone has to buy in high school that's like $100, the co-founder of that company went to MIT, the person who pioneered the use of the at symbol for email, so like Scandal 101 Podcast at Gmail, that at symbol, someone had to pioneer it and someone who was at MIT did. Um, We also have Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, hello, and then uh, the inventor of nylon, The people that go to this school are impressive. They're smart, they can invent things, they can work on things, and even though it's maybe not necessarily like famous people that you may have heard of, it's people that their contributions to society make our lives easier and are so woven into our lives that we may not recognize it. Like when I'm sending an email, I don't think about the fact that someone had to pioneer using the at symbol, but now millions, billions of people use it every day, and people like that, people who come up with that stuff, come from MIT. Based on the fact that you have to be super duper smart to go to MIT, and based on the fact that blackjack can be turned in a way to advantage the player if the right person is doing it, it's not surprising that geniuses at MIT made the game work for them. This story starts in 1979 with a man named J.P. Massar, also known as Mr. M. Mr. M, he was born in 1956, and he first wanted to be a dinosaur researcher, which, super cool, but then he was at MIT, and he was like, you know what, I love computers. So he graduated from MIT in 1979 with a master's in computer science. Very, (laughs) very smart individual. He discovered counting cards in 1979 in a quote, 
that I couldn't tell if it was from him or not, but it was in a documentary by the person who was playing him. But the quote said that, quote, the typical card counter personality type has one preeminent feature, and that's a desire within them to beat the system. It's not as extreme as a criminal, but it's not conformist, end quote. Back to Blackjack not being subject to the law of independent trials, since each card impacts the next card and how that's going to play out, if you can find a way to quickly count the cards to see what's happening, you can increase the odds of knowing what is going to happen, thus informing you how to bet. There's no way you can perfectly predict what card is going to come up, but you can, based on statistical data, on probability, you can figure statistically this is the most likely card to come up or this is the least likely card to come up. So you can figure out within a decent certainty this is probably going to be what's going to happen. Mr. M, he was obsessed with this, and he used his knowledge and his skill to develop a system of counting cards back when he founded the team in 1979. He started this group after the New Jersey Casino Control Commission ruled that it was illegal for casinos to ban card counters. Casinos, they were allowed to take other measures to make it more difficult for card counters, such as random shuffling, using more than one deck, but at least in New Jersey, they could not ban card counters. So Mr. M and his team, they're like, heck yeah, let's go try this out. The team piled their money together. It was about $5,000 and they came back with around $20,000. Even though they like quadrupled their money and the team was successful, the team itself wasn't super organized. It was more just like a group of friends pooling their money together with a goal rather than like a strict business structure. And the team was unorganized, at least for a little bit, until 1980. Mr. M overheard a conversation about professional blackjack, so he was like, hmm, that's interesting. So he went up and introduced himself to the speaker. The speaker's name was Mr. Kaplan. Bill Kaplan, he had graduated from Harvard with his master's, and he had ran a successful blackjack team in Vegas a few years earlier. Some background on Mr. Kaplan, when he, oh, Mr. Kaplan, if you watch the show The Blacklist, that just clicked in my brain, such a good show. Mr. Kaplan, an amazing character. Anyway, in between Mr. Kaplan's bachelor's degree and his master's degree, he was like, hey, I want to go make some money in Vegas. He told his mom that he was postponing going to Harvard for his graduate degree to go make some money on gambling. <laughs> and she said, quote, oh my God, this is ridiculous. What am I going to tell my friends? End quote. <laughs> yes, the biggest concern about your son saying, hey, I'm going to go gamble and win some money in Vegas is what am I going to tell my friends? Who knows? That's the biggest concern. <laughs> Even though his mom was a little against it, his stepdad was more supportive and he was basically like, okay, well, show me you can do this. And if you can show me, then I'll support you. So Mr. Kaplan, that's what he did. He showed his stepdad what he could do. And after going to Vegas, he spent a year there and he turned $1,000 into $35,000. So this is back in 1977. And so in today's money, that would be like turning $4,600 into $164,000. So he did pretty well for himself in a year. He 
won that money, he went to Harvard, he got his master's degree, and it is after he gets his master's degree and he's speaking, that is when Mr. M introduces himself to Mr. Kaplan. So they meet, they're chit-chatting, and Mr. Kaplan's like, okay, let me see what you got going on. So Mr. Kaplan watches Mr. M and his team play for a weekend in Atlantic City, and Mr. Kaplan is like, wow, you guys are making this way more complicated than this has to be. Mr. Kaplan noticed that the team, they were overcomplicating things, they were using a different card counting strategy that didn't make a lot of sense, the card counting strategy they were using was more prone to errors, so he sat down with Mr. M, he was like, listen, here's what we need to do, here's how we need to move forward, and then Mr. Kaplan proposed his idea. Mr. Kaplan's idea was to put a team together, but to manage it like a business. Management procedures are required counting systems, strict training, approval processes for players, and tracking, playing, in casinos. Mr. Kaplan, he was like, we're going to get this business, we're going to make sure we know what's happening, and we're going to get this on lockdown. So that's what they do at first. They organize this new system, this new team in 1980, and they had investors with about $89,000 in capital. And in 10 weeks, they had doubled that money, and the average profits per hour were $162.50. The team, it was mostly made up of undergraduate students, and they made an average of $80 per hour in 1980. $80 an hour now is an insane amount of money, but in the 80s? <laughs> wow. This team, it continued playing into the, in through the 1980s, and the team often had a capital worth of $350,000. But throughout the 1980s, the team, it kind of died down. Even though it was profitable, people were getting exhausted. People were kind of going their own direction. There was some success, but overall, the team was dying. That was until a grand opening in 1992 that would breathe new life into this team. In 1992, the Foxwood Casino opened up in Connecticut, and Mr. M said that that would be a good way to train new people. It was a good opportunity because more casinos were opening, so there was a lot more kind of low-key places to practice rather than just Vegas and Atlantic City. And it was because of these new opportunities that Mr. Kaplan, Mr. M, and John Chang formed a Massachusetts limited partnership in 1992 called Strategic Investments to bankroll the team. Through investors and contributors, they raised about $1 million and they formed a system of how it would work. Even though they were organized, they had this limited partnership, they figured out how it was going to work, they still had some things to worry about. And the main thing they had to worry about were people at casinos employed to watch out for card counters and quote-unquote undesirables. These casino detectives, they started becoming popular in the 1940s when mob money was used to build the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, and so at that point, the mob, they would use their methods to take care of people, such as threatening violence against people, cutting off people's fingers, beating them up. They were basically like, if you're taking too, money, too much money from us, if you're cheating, you're going to face the wrath of the mob. That's not really how it works today. There are big casino companies, or the casinos are owned by big companies, so they have regulated, regulated securities. They have a lot of cameras in the casinos, but even though it's not 
I guess, necessarily run by the mob. That doesn't mean casinos still don't use potentially harassing and violent uh, techniques. Presumably, they'll just kick you out. And the reason why they can do this is it casinos are private property. They're private businesses, so they have the right to ban you. They have the right to kick you out. But even though this is the case, card counting is not illegal. There are no states which outlaw counting cards. So if you're smart enough to learn it, you're not breaking any laws. But at the same time, you risk getting in trouble with the casinos, getting banned, being put on a list. So you're on like basically a casino watch list. One of the things I learned while doing this research is there is this thing called the Griffin book. And basically what it is, is it is a book put out by a private company, like an investigative company. And anybody who is considered to be a cheater or a card counter that is known to a casino goes into this book, any aliases that they have, and it's sent out to casinos around the world. So that way the casinos, if they see oh, John Smith, who's 5'6 and has blonde hair, is coming in our casino, we can watch him. So that way, if he wins too much, we can kick him out or we can just not let him in. Something else that is interesting about counting cards is it's really not that old of a procedure, if for lack of a better term. It was more of just a theory until there was a paper written about it in 1958 titled The Optimum Strategy in Blackjack by then UCLA professor Edward O'Thorpe. He is now known as the father of card counting and his strategy was really the first to put it in a formula and to be like, listen, this is how you can do it. This is how you can be successful. His theories, they've been refined, they've been perfected, and this team, Strategic Investments, was going to build off of this theory, and they were going to make it a successful enterprise. The mission of the limited partnership strategic investments was, quote, to apply mathematical analysis to win the game of blackjack, end quote. After getting money from investors, a million dollars, I think I said earlier, the payout was management would get 45%, investors would get 45%, and the players themselves would get 10%, and then bonuses as well. So Mr. Kaplan, Mr. M, the management team, they have the business set up, they have the money, but now they need the players. They needed intelligent, focused, and somewhat aggressive people who wouldn't freeze being on the team, but at the same time are good under pressure. They recruited and they got people by word of mouth, by putting up posters at MIT, just various ways being like, hey, do you want to learn how to count cards and make a lot of money? And so one night in April of 1992, in Building 2, Room 143, the launch of Strategic Investments was official. One big appeal to joining this group, besides the fact that they could potentially gain lots of money, is that the players didn't have to put up any of their own money. It was all coming from this investment fund. But on the flip side, even though they didn't have to put up their own money, they had to commit to hours of hardcore training, hours every day for months at a time. The documentary that I mentioned in the sources, they talk kind of extensively about the different card counting methods that the team used. I'm not going to talk about them because it's really not that important 
important to the story in terms of understanding what happened. And also, I'm not trying to teach you how to count cards, but if you want to look it up, they talk about it in the documentary. There are sources online about counting cards. So if you want to learn how to do it, go for it, go crazy. But there's no point in me detailing it because I also just don't understand it. Not only are these card counting methods difficult to understand, it's a lot of math, it's a lot of thinking, it's quick, it's rapid, they were also trained in hard conditions. They would be counting cards in these high-pressure situations, they would be blasting music, having lots of distractions, and at some times they would even pour buckets of ice on people and then would say, what's the count? How many kings? How many whatever? And the students were expected to know exactly what was going on. And reminder, these are college students. Granted, they're smart, they are intelligent, they're at MIT, but these are college students, 19 to 25 year olds, let's say, that are learning how to do this, beat the system to potentially win tons of money. Once players were deemed good enough to go to casinos, they started off at Foxwoods, that casino in Connecticut with small amounts of money. They were only to bet the minimum, And it was basically to ensure that, okay, you've learned the system, at least in the classroom, but let's see how you do in a real casino to see if they could handle the pressure, the the, uh, casino detectives, the pressure of the dealers. And just like, if you've been to a casino, it's not a quiet environment. People are shouting, slot machines are going off, there's music, a lot of them smell like cigarette smoke. So it's very stimulating just to go to have fun. And then on top of that, you're going to add these complex card counting methods that you have to keep track of. And at the same time, you are trying to win money. Like it's easy to bet money that's not yours, but at the same time, you're betting someone's money. So that's probably some pressure as well. The team, they trained at this casino. And when they were finally trained up, it was time to go to the gambling heaven of the United States, probably the world, Las Vegas. How they would get the money to Las Vegas is players would carry the money on them. And one of the players in an interview said that he flew with $150,000 in his jacket because it was the only way to get through the security checkpoints. And of course, this was all before 9-11. But can you imagine, as a college student, flying through or going through airport security and also flying on a plane, sitting on a plane with $150,000 in the, what is this? The eight, this is the nineties. That's insane. That's, that's an insane amount of money now, but a college student being given $150,000 to say, go on a plane by yourself and fly to Las Vegas from Massachusetts yikes okay but they did it anyways from what i could tell there were no incidents with the airport so they made it work somehow once the team was in vegas there were signals to communicate with each other and obviously you have to be discreet because if you're like hey this counts really good the (laughs) the detective is going to be like hmm you just said count does that mean you're counting cards sir and you'd be like no i was talking about the count of (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that, but you have to be discreet. So some ways that they would communicate is they would have one hand on the table and they would put their chin on it. So it was like, if it was their left hand, it meant, you know, this is either a good table or a bad table. And then their right hand meant the opposite, 
but then if they put up both of their hands and like rested it on rested their chin on both of their hands they were like this table's awesome come here now we're gonna bet tons of money so they had these little signals that it was like easy to communicate if you knew it but if you just were a normal person or the detectives they were like they're just chilling they're not doing anything so it was a very effective way to communicate there was another thing that had to do with the counting of the cards with how they were able to get away with it is casinos at this point they knew what counting cards was they knew what the methods were but these MIT students and the instructors they explained or they combined multiple methods to kind of create their own new method so there were three methods that were talked about It had parts of method one, parts of method two, parts of method three that created this kind of like hybrid method. And so the MIT students knew it, but these casinos, they were looking for the signs of, you know, method one. And it's like, well, they're not doing method one. They're not doing method two. They're not doing method three. So how are they winning so much? Because from what we know, they're not doing any of it, but how are they getting so lucky? This routine, it was becoming successful. They were winning. And what a routine would look like is the team would fly in on Friday. They would basically gamble for 48 hours straight. No drinking, no partying. And on Sunday night, they would party it hard, party up. (laughs) What am I saying? They would party it up, party hard, woohoo, go team. And then they would party until they had to fly back home late, late Sunday night to then become a college student during the week. So let's just imagine this for a second. You're in college, you're studying for your physics class, your chemistry class, whatever. Friday comes around, you fly to Vegas, you have $100,000 in your pocket, you go gamble, you win tons of money, you then party it up, and then you go back and you're a student again. That was the lives of quite a few college students. This team, they didn't only go to Vegas, they also went to smaller casinos, riverboats, Atlantic City, and even Europe. And this was to help ensure that the casinos wouldn't catch on too quickly. And just to show how much money these teams were winning, there was one example of one of the teammates, their first weekend, they won $100,000. And there was another example where the deck, it was really hot, meaning it was really good. And one of the students bet $75,000 on one hand and won. So in like 10 seconds, they won $75,000. In just over one year of the partnership and all of this going on, they had brought in around $493,000 in winning. So almost half a million dollars in one year. That's insane. Even though this team, they were successful, they had this method, it's not a perfect system. And as you know, they're winning a lot more than they're losing, but there are times when they lost and they lost big. There was one example where one player lost $150,000 in 10 minutes. And granted, it's not the student's money, it's the investor's money, but at the same time, you, you just can't lose that money. And it's not necessarily their fault because... If they're playing with the strategy, you can play the strategy correctly and still lose. It's not a surefire way. It's just you're a lot less likely to lose. And one of the theories they were talking about is 
I don't remember what it's called. It was like based on the, the rule of numbers or something along those lines. It's like with their practice, with their method, and based on this rule, it was statistically more likely that they would win if they kept playing. But the problem was if you ran out of money, you didn't have any more money to keep playing to win it back. So then you just lost. So at this point in the story, it's summer of 1993. They've been together for over a year, this partnership, this team. And at this point, they've gained almost $1 million in profits. Even though this was going well, casinos, they're starting to catch on because obviously casinos are in the business of taking money, not giving money. And so when people are continuously winning, they're going to start looking in and they're going to start looking in hard. These players that kept coming back, they were being followed with security by investigators. And specifically, one man named Andy Anderson was hired to follow the MIT kids. He was a private detective. He was hired out. He was hired to figure out who the kids were and how the kids were winning. Because remember, they were using this hybrid method, so the casinos couldn't understand how they were winning because they weren't using a known, well-established way to count cards. Starting later that summer in the fall of 1993, the team members on the Blackjack team, they're starting to get recognized, and once they're recognized, casinos are banning them, they're potentially threatening them, and as the team members started to get recognized, the investigators, not only are they banning them, but they're still looking in because they're trying to figure out how are these kids winning? Like, we can ban them, but they're going to just go win somewhere else, so that means there's a method that they know that we don't know that people could just come back and win again. So these casinos, they're like, what are they doing? Even though these kids are smart, the investigators start to notice patterns, like, for example, similarities in the IDs. These uh, team players, they would use fake IDs, but they would often be given things at casinos, such as, like, comped rooms, comped tickets, comped airfare. And when they got those tickets, they often put their real address, which was in Massachusetts. When they started noticing that pattern, they're like, okay, all of these kids are from the Massachusetts area. They're starting to narrow it down. And it was specifically around the Cambridge, Massachusetts area. So investigators are starting to put the pieces together. Another thing investigators realized and found is that these students, okay, these students are so smart. And this next thing is so dumb. I don't know how how this happened, why this happened, but investigators found a printed out manual that one of the students left explaining exactly how the card counting system worked, explaining the process, the procedures, everything. So the investigators found this and they're like, bingo, we've got the strategy. We know how it works. We're starting to get the people. It's not illegal, so we can't arrest them. But we can further crack down on these people and we could start looking out for people who are using this method. The casinos are catching on, but the team, they're still trying to figure out how they can make this last. So they start using disguises, using wigs, putting on makeup, trying to use these different looks to get around the fact that their faces were recognizable. They were in this book. Casinos knew who they were. And even though they tried it, some of the members were like, yeah, it didn't work too well. Like it was a good thought, but we weren't good at makeup. We weren't good at disguising ourselves. So it didn't last too long. 
because students are being banned from casinos, because there are growing tensions in the team, they are starting to want more money, there's just, the team is kind of going on the downhill slope. And even though this team had been successful, they were also starting to lose some money. And one incident really kind of sparked the demise of this team. Mr. M, he went into a classroom where the students were. He brought the bag of cash with them to like go, you know, give it to them so they could go. And they were just in there and he left and the students left. It wasn't until later that night, like middle of the night where Mr. M woke up, shot out of his bed and was like, oh my God, I left the money in the classroom. So he gets some students, he goes to the classroom, they search the building, they can't find the cash. And that's because the bag of cash, the bag with $125,000 was found by the janitor scheduled to clean the room that day. The janitor was clearly a very uh, honest person because he turned it into a supervisor and then campus police were called and because that much money was involved, the federal agents were called. FBI, CIA, DEA, they were all called because the money had to be investigated to show that, okay, it's not uh, gun smuggling money, drug smuggling money, it's not illegal money. And so eventually the team did get the money back after a lot of investigation. But this event was basically the team was like, um, you're just leaving $125,000. Like, you're clearly not with it anymore. We're already mad. We're not getting enough money. And Mr. M, he was like, it was truly an accident. But I was in a lot of distress over the money, over the fact that we were starting to lose a lot more. And so it was just all going downhill. At this point, the team had lost basically all of the profits they had made, about a million dollars, and it it just was a bad situation. No one could gamble anymore, especially because all of their faces were known. Because of the money problems, the relationships, the tension, Strategic Investment disbanded in December of 1993, surviving less than two years. So all of this. The mil- the hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars won, the Vegas trips, the parties, the comped rooms, the college students having this opportunity, it was gone. After the disbandment of strategic investments, two other groups formed, and some of those, the two groups at some points had millions of dollars at times, but by the year 2000, the MIT, Bla- MIT blackjack teams were officially over. People had drifted away. They were doing their own individual things. And that was that for the MIT blackjack teams. There have been quite a few movies, TV shows, and books made about this. The most famous movie is 21, and it came out in 2008. It had Kevin Spacey as the main professor character guy. Super interestingly, the movie had some cameos in it with two original MIT Blackjack players, like on the actual MIT team. They were in the movie as casino dealers, which ironic. And even Mr. Kaplan had a cameo in the background of the movie. The movie, it says it's like inspired by true events, which means it's been exaggerated a lot. There really wasn't a love story involved like there was in the movie. 
In the movie, the team was run by the professor, but that wasn't the case in real life. In real life, the team was often ran by students and alumni of the team. Um, the book that is often credited with what the movie was based on is called Bringing Down the House, but a lot of the book is said to have fictional elements and exaggerated elements in there, so the book is some good insight, but it's good to keep in mind that if you're going to read the book, it's been criticized for exaggerating a lot of things, for being fictional at some point, so it's kind of a true account, but not completely accurate. To end off the story of the MIT Blackjack team, I think the most important thing to figure out is how much money did this team actually make? Unfortunately, there's not a solid answer. There's not one single number out there, but depending on the source you look at, there are estimates between 22 and $57 million that this MIT Blackjack team made. And remember, all of this money was made, and obviously not the players got, but this money was made by the players who were all college students. Mostly undergraduate, some graduate college students made between 22 and $57 million by playing blackjack simply by knowing how math works and how to make the game work. And with that, that concludes the MIT blackjack team. This scandal, and I guess like the reason I categorize it as a scandal is because casinos, um, people who are like, that's cheating, like they probably find it scandalous. But really, it's just being good at math, knowing how statistics work, and honestly, just being smart and knowing how to do it. It's not cheating. It's not illegal. It's knowing how to play the game and make it work for you. And obviously, casinos don't like that because they have to pay out more and they can kick you out. They can ban you. Sure, all of those things. It's also, I think, a super interesting story because I think a lot of people can see themselves trying to learn and it's like fun to imagine yourself that you can you could learn this if you dedicated the time to understand to statistics understand probability to practice to understand the high pressure situation to get it down in theory most people can learn this it's just not a lot of people want to take the time it's obviously very difficult but it's fun to imagine because you could learn it. And that I think is what makes this story really interesting. Alrighty, so now it is time for the personal scandal. And this one is just about like family scandals. So this person sent in, I wanted to date my neighbor's daughter, but my dad told me, don't tell your mother, but you can't date her because I'm her real father, making her your half-sister. I was pretty disappointed because I was into her for a while, but my mom noticed and asked me what's wrong. I told her I was into our neighbor's daughter, but dad said he was actually her father. So then my mom told me, don't worry, he's not your real father, so you can date her. Whoa, okay, so... It sounds like your family needs to have a large roundtable discussion <laughs> so you can all be on the same page. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot to say about that. Just I hope things worked out with your neighbor <laughs> and hopefully your family had a conversation. Thank you for sending that in. Wow, okay. 
So that concludes this episode. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This episode, definitely a lighthearted one, super interesting. And it's fun to imagine that you could learn how to do it. I could learn how to do it. It would just take a lot of patience, but maybe we'll all get there so we can all meet in the casino next year sometime. If you want to stay up with the latest on social media, I'm going to post pictures relating to this case on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast, you'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.Podbean.com. And you can find the show notes there. You can also find the show notes linked in the description of this episode. And then the email, if you want to send your personal scandal in to be read on the podcast, is scandal101podcast at gmail.com. I hope you have a good Friday or whenever it is you're listening to this. And with that, this has been episode 45 of Scandal 101.